This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the future award-winning Moranalytics podcast. Today is Thursday, May 31st, 2018. I am Patrick Moran. Man, we're going into June already. It's going too damn quick. Coming up on today's show, I'll be joined by ESPN.com Buffalo Bills beat reporter Mike Rodak. Spent a lot of time with Mike talking, the entire show actually, and we talked about a wide variety of topics. We talk about his upbringing in Massachusetts and Mike getting a job working with ESPN.com, covering the Patriots before the kid was even out of college. We talk about him coming to Buffalo to cover the Bills in 2013. And of course, because of that and where he's from and what he did before that, a bunch of fans immediately hated him because of his New England ties. We talk about how he handled that both then in 2013 and how he still does today. Spent a lot of time discussing several media topics with Mike, including the shitty, awful buyouts going on at the Buffalo News right now. Of course, we talk at least a little bit about the Buffalo Bills and plenty more. All that coming up with Mike in just a minute. Before that, and I just mentioned this a second ago, I got to add, and I'm pretty goddamn disgusted myself by what's happening at the Buffalo News especially at the sports department. It's my hometown newspaper. I grew up loving and living to read the Buffalo News. And you know, I'm sure many newspapers around the country are going through a lot of this bullshit now. On the last podcast, I touched on John Vogel and Bucky Gleason accepting, I'm using air quotes here, buyouts over the past week. And then just this past Monday came the biggest hit yet when 29-year Buffalo News columnist, veteran Jerry Sullivan accepted a buyout. And during his tweet when he announced it, he straight up said that the Buffalo News yanked his column. They want to call these Buffalo News buyouts voluntary. Trust me, they're really not. Look, I don't want to take away from today's interview with Mike Rodak. Plus, Mike shares his thoughts on Sully leaving the Buffalo News during our interview. But I do want to say, I just think it's awful. And I know, and trust me, I know there's a lot of Buffalo Bills fans out there who do not like Jerry Sullivan at all. They're glad he's gone. They're glad he's out at the Buffalo News. I just ain't with that, man. I'm just not. I am personally not even a big Jerry Sullivan fan. I got to be completely honest with you there. I hated a lot of his columns and I thought the way he handled himself sometimes on Twitter was kind of douchey. And I've called him out on Twitter on several occasions for that. But I'm going to admit this. No matter what it was that he wrote, I always, always look forward to reading what he had to say next. When the Bills would play on a Sunday before anything else on Monday morning or in today's day and age, Sunday night in the on the digital version of it, I always look for Jerry Sullivan's column before anything else. Unless I truly loathe someone, like say someone like Skip Bayless, I ain't never going to take joy, especially publicly, in someone losing their jobs. 
and maybe their career for that matter. When Sully had that tweet announcing that he was leaving, some of the mentions on his Twitter, it's just disturbing and over the line and unnecessary in my opinion, and I'm just not going to roll like that. At the same time, many sports fans are simply passionate. I'm not talking about trolls. I'm talking about truly being passionate about something, and they don't like Jerry Sullivan. So if that's how they're going to express themselves publicly with joy and good riddance tweets and all that other stuff, we're just going to agree to disagree with how it's been handled. All right, enough about that. Let's get back to the reason why we're here today. Here's my interview with ESPN.com's Mike Rodak. And contrary to what some Buffalo Bills fans may want to think, no, Mike did not take this interview wearing his Tom Brady jersey. My guest today is the Buffalo Bills beat reporter for ESPN.com. Before that, he helped cover the New England Patriots for ESPN Boston, something Bills fans, I'm sure, still annoyingly remind him of to this day. I'm joined by Mike Rodak. What's going on, Mike? How you doing? I'm doing well. That is very true. <laughs> Probably not as bad now as it used to be. Yeah, it's been a few years, so it kind of has eased off. But anytime, you know, there's a quote unquote negative thing that I'll say or write, it always seems to uh, to come up again as if, you know, there's some correlation between the two. <laughs> I know. I hear you, man. And we're going to you know what? I'm going to touch on that in a little bit for that, though. Let's start here. You're a native of Massachusetts. That's where you're from, right? Yep, exactly. Where did you grow up in Massachusetts? Where'd you grow up? So, yeah, central Massachusetts, outside of uh, of Worcester, it's a town called Grafton, probably about you know forty five minutes to an hour uh, west of Boston. I'd say about six hours down to Thruway for coming from Buffalo. Who were a few of your favorite athletes as a kid when you were growing up? It's funny, you know, for all the people on Twitter who sort of uh, associate me with Tom Brady and you know all sorts of. Uh, uh, you know, PG or, or worse rated things about me and him. Honestly, it wasn't, I, I grew up loving Drew Bledsoe. I was a little bit, I guess, too old for Brady. Not that I was, you know, I wasn't around for that time, but you know, when I was in elementary school and, and, you know, just starting to watch sports, it was all Drew Bledsoe for me, um, in the mid to late nineties and him bringing the Patriots to the Super Bowl against the Packers in 96. And, uh, but to be honest, like I, I was probably more of a um, a baseball fan, and so no Marcus Siapara and Pedro Martinez were those are my guys. Uh, late '90s, early 2000s Red Sox teams were um, certainly you know guys that I, I watched growing up, and then you know you started getting into high school, and especially in my case where I, I wanted to work in sports or you know be around sports, you sort of start to lose the fan aspect. So, you know, by the early to mid two thousands, I, it wasn't as passionate, uh, wasn't as you you weren't worshiping athletes as much. So I'd say some of that stuff faded as you got into the the Tom Brady years in Boston or even Paul Pierce to an extent, um, the Kevin Garnett, you know, Celtics and and, and those teams. So it's probably earlier on in the nineties where I was, I was following those guys more. Now, when you look back to being a kid, you know, growing up around the area, being a Boston fan, obviously, and especially now that, you know, you work in the Buffalo market and you cover the Bills and of course the Sabres are there. Do you realize that maybe you guys were a little bit spoiled growing up watching sports where at least one of the teams every year were competing for a championship, if not winning one outright? You know what I mean? As a kid, you kind of take it for granted that these teams are good. Yeah, it's true. And I, Again, I think some of the that might even apply more to the slightly younger generation for me, um, just because, you know, the Bruins weren't really good until I was in college or even, you know, later on um, after college. You know, you look at the, the 2011 run and 2013 run for them. The Celtics were pretty bad for a stretch there. I remember the, the Ron Mercer Celtics and yeah. um, Vitaly Potapenko and they had some, you know, pretty bad teams. They had a couple of years against the Nets in the Eastern Conference Finals, but they didn't really win until 2008, you know, when I was late in high school and, and again, sort of fading away from being a fan and, um, you know, the Patriots of the late nineties, Pete Carroll and, and some of those Red Sox teams were, were pretty bad, you know, 2000, 2001, they weren't great. So 
Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a period. I would say for high school for me, when you had the 04 Red Sox winning and the Celtics in 08, and then um, you know the Patriots in, in 03 and 04, there was a period of time where it was like one after another. Um, and yeah, there was an element of, of being spoiled, but I think there's for every up, there's also a lot of downs, and uh, you know, there's teams losing. Uh, the 03 Red Sox, for instance, are, are one that stick out in my mind. Where you had Aaron Boone, yeah, yeah, I remember turning off the TV that that pitch from Tim Wakefield, and Aaron Boone hits it down the left field line. You know, the TV was off before the ball landed, and <laughs> I was depressed for the next day. I remember my dad telling me, you know, because he had been a Red Sox fan going back to. Well, he actually began as a Yankees fan in the 50s and 60s, but then the impossible dream in 67 and the Red Sox losing the World Series in 75. And then again in 86 with Buckner. And he's telling me, you know, get used to it. It's the same old Red Sox. So I understand it. Um, I understand what Bills fans go through because in, in some ways I, I lived it growing up. Even the Patriots losing in 96, just like they lost the Super Bowl in 85. Um, I experienced you know, sort of both eras uh, of winning and also of losing in Boston. You know, it's kind of ironic to hear you talk about the Aaron Boone home run from a different perspective. I mean, I grew up a Yankees fan. I'm from New York. And most of the people I have on my podcast, you know, are Yankees guys. So it, it caught me back a little bit hearing the Aaron Boone perspective from the other side. Yeah, that set that play is, is still stuck in my mind that, that night watching that game. I remember, you know, Grady Little leaving in Pedro too long and, all the mistakes that, you know, will be second guessed for, for decades. So you go to Providence for college. Let me ask you this. Why did you go to Providence and were there any other schools that you were considering going to? Yeah, well, that's where my brother went. And I'd say at that time in my life, I, my brother's 10 years older and I sort of, you know, I saw him growing up and a lot of what he did, I, I sort of wanted to do myself. Um, so it was really PC all the way in my mind. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I don't know if, you know, if you go back in time and I could change it, would I still go to PC? Maybe, maybe not. The other schools I was looking at, Northeastern in Boston, EU, BC, UMass, I think were the the five that I applied to. So it was all pretty local. Um, but now having done this job and, and been across the country, I've been to pretty much every major city in the U.S. to cover games you know, your world starts to get bigger and you're like, oh, you know, what if I had gone to this school or that school or, you know, the West Coast, you know, the the South or something. It's an SEC school. You have, you know, football, major football programs. It would have been different. But, you know, it's no regrets for me, especially because being at PC allowed me to be close enough to the Patriots practice facility where I could help out and, and um, you know, kind of start my career at ESPN while I was still in college. Now, you got a degree in finance and management from what I've read. I just had Jenny Wrightus on Monday, and she majored in biochemistry and molecular, I don't even know something, way too smart for me, at Penn State. Adam Schefter said he didn't go to school to become, you know, a journalist. It kind of fell into him. For you, I mean, it shows that not everyone who goes on to become a sports writer majors in journalism in college, right? Exactly. And it's it's more of a industry where on the job training, I think, is valued more than anything else. In fact, I remember um, I was in Bristol where you know, ESPN headquarters a couple months ago and talking to my boss just randomly about the business. And I think she mentioned, you know, there's really no point in getting a, a master's degree in journalism because you're just wasting your money. People who do well in this business are those who have the the on the ground experience and are able to write well or speak well or, you know, whatever particular skill it takes rather than sitting in a classroom and learning, you know, this is how you do X, Y, and Z. That might be helpful in other industries. Um, you know, if you're a doctor, for instance, you need sure. to go to school, you know, you have to go to medical school. But in my case, yeah, I, I grew up, especially in high school, really wanting to, again, work in sports, but I wanted to either work on the business side you know, salary cap, be a GM, be a scout. I didn't really know what I wanted to do exactly, but I knew I wanted to work around that business. So I figured, you know, having a degree in that would help because um, PC didn't have a sports management degree. And, you know, I think there's questions about how helpful that can be, um, you know, to getting into sports. I've seen a lot of guys who have those and are still having trouble, but that's what I sort of figured would work for me. And, you know, Providence doesn't even have a, a journalism program to begin with. So that wasn't anything that was really on my radar. Was there a specific turning point for you 
when you realized that you wanted to become a sports reporter? Like you said, you knew that you wanted to work in sports in some capacity, you know, doing something. But was there a specific time where you said, you know what? I like writing. I like being a reporter. This is what I want to do. Yeah, I'd say it's once I started with with ESPN part time in college. That was the summer before my sophomore year. And I had been, again, emailing a lot of people that were in the business of sports, whether it was Patriots employees or agents or other people. Uh, Mike Reese was one of the people I emailed, who, of course, is the Patriots reporter for ESPN. And just given the sort of guy that Mike is, he's very gracious and uh, gave me the opportunity. So it would have been the summer of 2010, my sophomore year of college, to come by training camp and just learn from the ground up, basically learn how to interview and, and write stories. And, you know, I feel like I was a pretty good writer to begin with, just based on, you know, being in high school and, and what I did there. But, you know, it, it's totally new and, and different. And I'd say even two or three years into it, you know, you're starting to get late in college. And I'm thinking, what am I going to do as a full time job? I was still thinking, you know, I'd love to get hired by an NFL team and and work for them not to write but again to be in the front office in some capacity and um around the same time as you know when I graduated high school and ESPN started our current project of having one writer for every team and the bill spot opened up and I took that job and I really haven't looked back um so I'd say if you're looking for a true turning point it's probably really once I started this job and it became a full-time career for me and um, really the last five, six years now, I've enjoyed every day of it. So now before you come to Buffalo in 2013, I believe, yeah, 2013. In 2012, you helped the ESPN Boston crew with coverage at Super Bowl 46 in Indy. That's the year where the Giants beat the Patriots 21-17. I'm assuming that was your first Super Bowl, correct? It was, yep. First and only at this point. Was it a little overwhelming for you, you know, being as young as you were at that time and as inexperienced, being part of a team that covers a Super Bowl? Yeah, it was, to be honest. I mean, it's it's such a grand stage. And the memory that really sticks out to me was, uh, you know, the final drive of the game. And the Giants had just scored. You know, I think the Patriots had the ball back with X number of seconds on the clock. And, and we're actually out in the auxiliary press box at, uh, Lucas Oil Stadium. It's an indoor stadium, and they're just blasting the AC. So I'm literally shivering. It, it had to be 50 degrees up there in the top of the grandstand, and I'm trying to type and and get this story uh, worked on. Um, and then you're going downstairs into the tunnel, and there's just you know dozens and hundreds of people down there, and it's a really big stage. And I, my job was to talk to Rob Gronkowski and do a story on Rob Gronkowski, and that was. Um, really my only task because we had so many people there, but you're, you're totally right. You know, you're thinking about this being on the front page of ESPN and, and all that. So, um, it was a good experience and it's good, um, practice for working under pressure and working in an environment where, you know, a lot of people are going to pay attention to your work product. So you're at ESPN Boston from 2010 to 2013, part of the time while you're still in school. During that time, New England never, which is nothing new, of course, they never went worse than 12 and four. Though they only did make the Super Bowl that one year and they, and they lost. They lost two AFC championship games as well. Being around a team that was that good all the time, was it a little bit of a culture shock for you coming over to cover the Bills in 2013? Exactly. And, you know, if people want to say you're a Patriots fan or uh, you hate the Bills or, you know, things I don't, I'm, I'm not going to call true. I do think a lot of that comes from just the contrast of of watching how that team was run for the three years that I covered them in New England and how they did things, just whether you're in the locker room or at practice or just generally um, what you know to be true about the team or what people are saying versus coming here. And I mean, first of all, just the facilities, um, especially back before the renovations at the Ralph and before the renovations at the practice facility, it's like you're walking into a high school locker room, you know, the stadium is, is out of 1972 and the visitor's locker room is the size of a broom closet. And you're just like, you know, wow, this is, this is JV. Um, and then you're seeing some of the roster moves that get made and, and how they played some of the games and just overall how everything's run. And you're like, wow, you know, this is different and this is not good. Yeah. A lot of that I think is, is probably reflected in the writing, especially at the time. Cause I think they've, 
they've improved in a lot of ways since then. But at the time, it's, you know, you're trying to get across how far this team, this organization has to come to get to a point where they're good. And for a lot of people, maybe that was hard to hear or hard to read, but that was what I felt to be true at the time. And I certainly stand by it. Well, you said something earlier to me that stands out that's really important. And I think listeners need to know this. When you're a sports reporter, and I remember vividly a conversation with Tyler Dunn on this podcast, same deal. You lose your fandom. Some people do it very early, you know, in high school even, because they know that's what they want to do. And they know that they can't become, you know, they got to lose that fandom. Like in Tyler's case, he grew up the biggest Green Bay Packers fan in the world. You know what I mean? He was obsessed with Brett Favre growing up. He eventually ultimately went on to become a a beat writer for the Packers. You got to lose your fandom. So you've talked about that and you've done that. So you, you come to Buffalo to do a job, not to hate the Bills or not to love the Patriots, you know, to be a writer, a reporter and do a job. But you come here and naturally because of your uh, New England Patriot ties and growing up in Boston, like I said, you know, every time you wrote a negative word, fans pretty much shit all over it. You know what I mean? It, was mm-hmm. it a difficult or maybe I should say uh, an annoying process for you getting over that when fans were constantly giving you shit anytime you had the gall to say something negative about the Bills, which let's be real, at the time the team stunk. So it was easy yeah, to exactly. say something bad about them. Yeah, I mean, it was E.J. Manuel, and it was Doug Marone's first year, 2013, and uh, there's just a lot of problems with the team. And yet, even in 2014, there's still issues, and then you get into Rex, and there's a whole new host of issues that cropped up. So, yeah, there, there's, I, I think there's, there's a misunderstanding or a misconception among fans that just because a writer is is from one area means that there's loyalty there, or you know, you can't cover a division rival. It's a job for us. Um, I would just as much cover the Bills as objectively as possible as I would Boise State or Texas A&M or go move and, and cover, you know, the Minnesota Twins. It's it's not a loyalty or, or fanhood thing. It, it's a job. Um, so you do it the same way, no matter where you are. And that includes where I grew up in Boston. I mean, there was, believe me, those critical articles I wrote, you know, especially about the defensive backfield, for instance, that's the one that comes to mind where those couple of years, the Patriots struggled back there. They had some terrible draft picks, Razai Dowling, the second round cornerback or Terrence Wheatley, another second round cornerback. Darius Butler is pretty bad. Um, Brandon Merriweather, who they drafted in the first round, there's a lot of guys back there and there are some games where they're getting roasted and I called them out and that was even as a 20 or 21 year old, again, growing up in Boston, that that's, that's your job and you have to do it to the best of your ability. But I I think, yeah, there's definitely times where I think Bill's fans might single me out, which, um, you know, it's, it's surprising given I'm not the only one from new England. Jerry Sullivan, for instance, was from Rhode Island. He grew up there. Adam Benini from Channel 2 is from uh, Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Matthew Fairburn uh, from Syracuse.com is from Haverhill, Massachusetts. Right. Jonah Javad at Channel 2 is here. He's from Newton, Mass. There's a lot of people who grew up in that area and um, have come to Buffalo. Or they grew up somewhere else. Josh Reed from Channel 4 grew up in Ohio. Tim Graham from Buffalo News grew up in Ohio. A lot of people in that media room aren't Buffalonian. So the idea that you need to be from Buffalo or, or any city in order to cover that team and understand that team and understand that fan base, I think is wrong. You have to be a journalist and you're doing a job. I agree. And and it, this needs to be stated as well. When I'm speaking of this, I'm speaking of a, a small minority of Buffalo Bills fans. So that needs to be said too. I don't want to give the impression that all Bills fans hate Mike Rodak because he's not from Buffalo. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's the case of the vocal minority. And even, you know, some of our studies at ESPN, you know, have found that the the social media people who are active and responding to writers and all that, you know, they're the the most um engaged audience or the most passionate part of the audience, but they're also a small percentage, or maybe two or three percent of the total audience. And the rest of the audience might be a little bit more reasonable uh when it comes to things like this but you know you walk up or somebody walks up to you wherever i mean i was having dinner in chicago two weeks ago and the guy next to me the table next to me said oh you're mike rodak you know you cover the bills i'm like yeah of course he wanted me to unblock his his brother on twitter <laughs> because apparently i blocked him but <laughs> i'm sitting at dinner i'm in chicago you know 
whatever miles that is away from Buffalo, 500 miles. And you're just like, wow. Um, you know, certainly people out there that appreciate what you do and follow you, you know, follow what you do. So that's what I try to focus on more than, you know, the small percentage of people on Twitter. Well, I really hope so because those small percentage are awful. I remember a stupid petition that someone started online by fans to try to get you removed from your job at ESPN.com covering the bills. How stupid, but what, how much did that bother you? Or did you just say, you know what? I'm not even going to pay any attention to this. No, I mean, there's, yeah, there's like a comical aspect to all that. In fact, like some of my bosses actually have seen that and they sort of uh, joke about it with me. I mean, it's not, everybody thinks that, you know, you're writing a letter to ESPN and you're, you're going to get this guy fired. It's going to be some grassroots effort. I mean, that's not, not really how it works. If anything, you know, it's good to have a, a writer that is being followed and there's attention on it. It's not to say that you, you say or, or have opinions for attention, but I think if people think, you know, there's going to be a petition and that's going to actively make anything happen, I think that's, that's probably misguided. <laughs> All right. And enough about, the, like I said, enough about a small majority or minority of fans that do shit like that. Let's talk about you actually going to Buffalo. All right. So you get the job, you become a bills reporter for ESPN.com. How long did it take you to find a spot in Buffalo? Like what area did you end up settling into? Yeah. So the first month I was actually in a extended stay hotel um, because what had happened is I had met Joe Biscalia back at the combine, I think it was 2013. So it was a few months. It was, must've been February of 2013. And mm-hmm. then July I get hired by ESPN and I, I sort of reached out to Joe to see where to live. And he said, uh, I actually have a, an opening. One of my roommates is moving out, but the roommate wasn't moving out until October 1st. So I think the official weekend that I moved to Buffalo was Labor Day weekend. I had four or five weeks to bridge there. So I was at a hotel for a little while um, the first month, and I lived with Joe for a little bit while after that. Then I ended up moving down closer to the stadium. That was on Elmwood, and I ended up moving down closer to the stadium for my second year had a place down in Hamburg for a while. Now I'm back up in the, uh, in the North towns and I enjoy it up here. Um, so I've, I've been all around Buffalo. Uh, I think I've, whether it's been living somewhere or just, you know, going to a restaurant or X, Y, Z, I feel like I've seen pretty much, you know, most of what there is to see out here. And anybody who thinks, you know, there's, this is another opinion you, you hear on Twitter a lot. It's like, Oh, Rodak, um, writes XYZ column negative about the, uh, the bills must mean he hates the job must mean he hates living in Buffalo. <laughs> There's no correlation between that. I mean, I, I sit out on my deck here, you know, 75 degree day, 80 degree day. And I can write something quote unquote critical about the team. Doesn't mean I hate living here. In fact, I actually enjoy sitting out on my deck and, you know, watching the, the traffic go by. It's nice. <laughs> that was going to be my next question. I was going to ask how you like living in Buffalo. You kind of answered that already. Let me ask you this. Do you think it's a little bit easier working in the Buffalo media market as opposed to major, you know, conglomerate cities like Boston, New York, LA? And now granted, you know, your your career's still, you know, the beginning stages of sorts. I mean, only have worked in Buffalo, you know, a little bit in Boston, but you have friends and you know guys from all the big markets as well. You think it's a little bit easier working in a city like Buffalo or no? Yeah, it's, I mean, in some ways yes, in some ways no. Um I think it's easier in that you know, there's not as much pressure to, you know, I don't want to say stand out because you always want to stand out, but you talk to other guys in, in different cities and they're fighting and scrapping and trying to break every little story just because it's more competitive and there's more people covering teams. And you get here and it's a little bit more laid back in that, I mean, maybe there's a practice squad signing and you kind of let that go and it's, it's okay. Um, you know, there's, there's a smaller time aspect there where, um, it's just less stressful, I'd say, but at the same time, um, yeah, there could be benefits to living in a bigger market just from an exposure standpoint. You know, there's going to be a lot more television opportunities if you're in a bigger market, et cetera. And it also depends where you are too. Um, you know, and I think it's nice for instance, to, to cover the Patriots and to live in Boston, but covering Bill Belichick is a chore. I mean, it's, it's hard. It's every single day. It, it's, it's combative and, you're not going to get very much from him and you're trying to find other ways to generate content with, you know, a coach that's not or even players that aren't very receptive to what you're trying to do. So 
you know, again, for everybody who says, you know, Rodak wants to go back and cover the Patriots, maybe not. I mean, <laughs> maybe it's not the, the, the best place to cover a team, or at least for right now, while Belichick's there. I just think it's it's much more, um, or it's much less stressful to cover the Bills, for instance, especially, you know, the way they are now with Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott and the new PR staff where they are leaps and bounds more accommodating than they have been in the past. Let's switch gears for a second. I wanted to ask you a couple of media related questions. What's going on in Buffalo right now with the Buffalo news? In my opinion, it just absolutely sucks. John Vogel loses his job covering the Sabres after 16 years. Bucky Gleason, you know, he's a columnist for almost 20 years. He's gone now. And then Tuesday we hear Jerry Sullivan is gone after 29 years. Now you get to know these guys some, particularly Sully, I'm sure you know pretty well. You've sat mm-hmm. next to him before during the Tim Graham radio show and Bill's games and stuff like that. But shit like that, does it really hit you close to home when you see reporters like that lose their job? Exactly. Yeah. It's it's uh it's disheartening to say the least. I mean, it's it's such a complicated business these days where I think, you know, you have sort of old school institutions like newspapers that have a lot of overhead, you know, trucks and printing presses and, and big buildings and uh, you know, paper and materials, all these things that they have to to support to run their business. And then you have, you know, different startups, you have the athletic coming in, for instance, and you have different models of how to do business, whether it's advertising or uh, subscriptions, which is, you know, sort of the new wave the last year or two. And nobody really knows exactly how to do it right and how it's going to be moving forward. In fact, I remember one of our bosses at our last meeting in Bristol said that priorities in, in this business change every four to six months. It's that quickly moving. And you hate for people to get swept up in that, especially you know, very good friends as, as Jerry Sullivan is and, and Bucky Gleason is. And, you know, they both left the Buffalo News by their own choice. But, right. you know, as Sully tweeted, even, you know, there's forces within the news that might not have seen them as valuable as, as they once were. Yeah, they took away I his disagree column. with that. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And I disagree with that. Um, you know, I, I know that there's a push, whether it's at the news or just in the business in general for more enterprise reporting, you know less opinionated stuff. Maybe I think that's a mistake. I think both can coexist in this business. I think you can have a Jerry Sullivan column and a Tim Graham feature on the same newspaper, on the same website. I think those two things can certainly coexist. And I, for one, will miss not only reading what Sully had to say. That was one of the first things I always did on the Monday morning after the game was see what Sully had had to write but just being around him, I've, I've golfed with him on the road. I've drank with him on the road. I'm sitting next to him in press conferences and people have this, this opinion or this picture of him that he's this, uh, unfriendly and, and grumpy old man. That's really not the case. I think Sully is one of my most loyal friends who always have my back. Uh, he's like a, you know, he's like a 20, 30 year old, uh, in a 62 year old's body because he'll be out there with us and, having fun with us and certainly something I'll miss. I've had a few interactions with Sully before and you're right. I mean, I don't know him on the level you do, so I'm not going to speak to him on a personal level like that, but you know, probably the best compliment I could give someone like him is this. I didn't always agree with his columns. In fact, sometimes I hated him to be honest with you. And sometimes he did strike, rub me the wrong way, whether it was on Twitter. And again, I've been around him a couple of times, but here's the best compliment I can give someone like him. I always looked forward to reading what he was going to write next. No matter what exactly. it was. Yeah, that's exactly it. I, like I said, you know, every Monday morning, I wanted to see what he had to say about the game because he has so much perspective, not only in this city. He's been here since 1989 and he covered, you know, the heights of the Jim Kelly year all the way down to, you know, the last 17 years, the drought. And then this season and not only football, he knows, but, you know, name a baseball player in the 1960s and Sully can tell you all about it. Right. Name a basketball player. He used to cover the New York Knicks uh, back in, in New York in the 80s. Covered Rick Pitino. He had his you know run-ups with, with Rick Pitino as well. He knows college basketball. He, he's so knowledgeable. He, he's an avid reader. Um, any author in the last 50 years, he knows. Any sports writer. So there's a lot more to Sully than you know people might think. And I just think it's a big loss for the Buffalo News no longer to have his voice and his column in their paper. 
there's a lot of people who think this. I'm not sure if I do, but I do think newspapers are almost on the verge of extinction at this point. I don't know if they're on the verge of being extinct, but they're definitely in trouble. I don't, there's no more denying that. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, most papers have come to that realization. Um, obviously, you've seen some cities that have dropped down to two or three days a week or they've dropped the paper entirely and they've converted more over to the digital model. For instance, you know, Syracuse Post Standard, I think, is, you know, much less reliant on their on their newspaper model and they're, they're owned by advanced media and advanced media is very good with sort of the the digital first um you know how to write for digital for instance seo is a big term and a big thing in our business as well so i mean i can't remember the last time i went and bought a newspaper or i never really had a subscription to a newspaper 20 years ago yeah i remember reading the the worcester telegram and gazette and getting my box scores for the red sox games by looking in the paper but reality has changed and we can access those things so much more easily on a phone or even just getting you know, a push alert to our phone. And that's how we earn. That's how we learn news. You know, there's no need to go in the next day and, and start reading in a paper. So eventually they'll go away. It's just a matter of when and how do they morph into new companies, those that do indeed survive. I often ask sports media folks to come on this podcast, the same question I'm going to ask it to you. When you cover a team or a sport over time, like you have, you start to develop some relationships and I'm sure friendships with some of these guys that you're competing with. And you've mentioned some of these names already, you know, but at the same token, you're competing with other newspapers and websites, TV stations, radio, even blogs, whatever. You know what I mean? On one hand, mm-hmm. these men and women become your friends. On the other, you want to kick their ass when it comes to getting that scoop, you know, or writing the best story for that day. Is that ever like a little bit of a tricky balanced to be able to balance that line between being friends and competition. Like I said, you want to win that news day, but maybe it sucks coming at the expense of someone you're friends with or no, or am I completely off base with that? No, no, I think that's true. And I, I do think it's probably better in Buffalo than it would be in other cities. Just anecdotally from talking to writers in other cities, there's, uh, you know, sort of these, these rivalries to the death between newspapers and different writers. And they're not, you know, as much friends with each other as I think they are here. There is a familial aspect, I think, to Buffalo sports media that I really like. You know, in that media room, for instance, I, um, you know, let's let's say I want to play golf later this week. The top six people I name are probably going to be, be people who cover the Bills and theoretically don't work for ESPN or, you know, aren't working with me, but uh, they're very close friends and I've been over their houses and I've watched their dogs and I've met their kids and I've met their wives or girlfriends. These people are close to me. Um, and that's, to be honest, probably closer than most, if not all ESPN employees, just based on they're the ones I see every day, right? as opposed to, you know, my boss, for instance, is in Jacksonville, his boss is in Chicago, his boss is in Bristol, um, other writers who might be across the country and different, covering different teams, so, yeah, there's a rivalry. I mean, we're not going to tip off each other. You know, if we have a, a breaking news story or something, we're not going to let somebody else know. And I think there's going to be a good feeling when, you know, we actually put it out there and we've beaten somebody else to the punch. But there's also a great deal of respect uh, between us. And I'd really compare it to, let's just say, NFL players, or NFL coaches they all know each other. They've all worked in a lot of cases for different teams, in some cases for seven, eight, nine different teams. So at some point it becomes less about, you know, the colors of the uniform and more just about the people themselves. And I think there's cases where that's lost even in fans following football. It's like, you know, you have, you know, X player from this team and Y player from that team and they're fighting during a game and fans are getting behind one guy and they're going after another one on Twitter I don't know if that's totally like how players see it. I think players see it as a brotherhood and regardless of what team you're on, you know, they see it as I'm your colleague. And even though I might be competing against you, you know, we're still family in in a sort of way. Now, obviously with ESPN, the majority of stuff you do is writing, but sometimes you do TV spots and it's, it's like for you, is it, you know, how do I say this? You ever pinch yourself a little bit like, when you're doing ESPN TV spot and bam, just like that, you're on with a guy like Scott Van Pelt on the air. 
Yeah, I think I should more. I think I'm so focused <laughs> on just trying to do a good job. And then, you know, you're going to bed that night. And you're like, wow, you know, I just, I just did, I was on Sports Center. I was on doing this. And it doesn't hit you always right in the moment. Um, but you're totally right. And you think of when you're growing up and watching some of these shows and um, listening to some of these personalities. And then all of a sudden you're standing there with a microphone in front of a camera and you have a earpiece in and you're listening to them talk to you. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> I'll say that, but it's uh, yeah, it's an important skill to have, I think is, is to be able to um, communicate or deliver on TV or radio, whatever the case may be, just because for some of the reasons we've, we've spoken about, about the writing side of the business, it's, you need to be versatile and you need to be able to do more than one thing just because of how people consume media is going to be in so many different ways. So if you're able to be good on TV and be a good writer, then, or be a good columnist and be a good reporter, then as you know, the more versatile you're able to be, I think the more valuable you're able to be to a company. I would surmise, and I'm pretty sure you agree with this too, that the biggest difference between being a sports writer today and maybe 30 years ago is like you said, you know, back in the day, you wrote a column and that's what you did. Or you covered a game and you wrote a story, you filed it, and you woke up the next day and you did it again. Today's day and age, that's not the case. Being a sports writer is just part of the gig. Now you better be able to do radio. You better be able to do TV, jump on a podcast like you are right now, all kinds of things. It's so much more important for today's, you know, especially young guys or, or women who are becoming journalists to be really well-rounded. And you need to be able to do it all at the same time, too. Right. <laughs> Sometimes when you have news break, you know, let's say the Bills trade Tyrod Taylor to the, the Browns, you know, you have your news desk that's asking you, hey, can you write a story for us? And then within 30 seconds, let's say, you might have a Sports Center producer calling you and asking you if you can set up a shot in your house and, and be on Sports Center live. And then you might get, you know, texts from different radio producers within the next five minutes and they want you on their shows and you're just trying to, process it all and, you know, keep a clear mind and, um, just try to do one thing at a time or, you know, do as many of those things, you know, or consecutively as you can, it can be tough. It's, it's such a, um, immediate business now where if something goes down news wise, you know, the biggest window for people to consume that is going to be probably within the first hour or two, because people want to know what happened and they want to know what it means. Whereas, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was something happens at two o'clock in the afternoon. They're probably not reading about it or consuming that media until, let's say, the six o'clock news. Or if it's a newspaper, it would have been whenever they got the newspaper the next morning. So there's that lag time where you can actually think and um, do research and write out an opinion or think out an opinion. Whereas now it's, it's very instantaneous and you have to be able to react very quickly. And sometimes things do get through the cracks that way, but that's just how the business works. And that's what the studies show. I mean, analytically, that's, you know, people are going to be clicking on your story or, or watching on TV right after something happens these days, as opposed to later down the road. Great point. Mike, if there is one, what do you think has been the hardest moment of your career? That's a good question. Nothing sort of immediately comes to mind. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's certainly been times where you're running with the team, uh, the PR staff or, you know, just whatever that may be. And you're trying to fight a battle on that end and it can just be exhausting. Uh, that's hard, I, I think. But I guess hard and worse are two different things. But the worst moments, I'd say, is when I, I screw something up, uh, I report something wrong or, you know, I, I miss something that's going on, something, something like that, I'd say. Again, I don't really have a specific example that comes to mind, but I'd much rather um, be accurate. You know, that's, that's obviously what you need to be. So if you're wrong, that's something where it sort of keeps you up at night, just even from a, a minor detail in a story or, um, you know, you, you publish a, a Tyrod Taylor column before he's actually cut about him being cut. That's probably one instance where, I wish I could have that one back, um, but you know, it's nothing really stands out as being a you know deep dark moment or anything. Who's the toughest? You know, I don't want to say anyone because you would definitely say Bill Belichick. 
Who's the toughest <laughs> athlete so far that you've ever had to deal with? And let me preface it by saying this. I'm not saying necessarily the biggest jerk or the worst person. I'm just saying like the most difficult athlete that you've had to deal with. Mario Williams. I mean, that probably qualifies as the the first category, but you have this star player who, especially on a Bills team that was really devoid of many stars and they're trying to get some sort of personality out of him and, and some sort of color and there's just not much there. Um, not only on, you know, the the aspect of you're approaching him and you're walking up to him and he doesn't really want to talk to you, but you're just trying to get something out of him. And he's, he was just difficult. He was a different guy. Um, I don't think he's really beloved in that locker room by any means. And he sort of just uh, kept to himself and played with his toy cars and his, his drones and collected a, a huge paycheck from the bills. And it's that sort of signing where, you know, I was probably critical of the bills. I wasn't here when they signed them, but you know, maybe when I was writing a couple years after when I first got here about what the Bills do wrong, it was giving Mario Williams a $100 million contract and having a press conference with, uh, it would have been Chan Gailey at the time and Russ Brandon and Buddy Nix and sort of announcing this guy as he's going to fix our franchise. Right. No, like, it's just stupid. Like, even if you're signing a big free agent, I understand the need for a press conference, but Sometimes just see how it goes. Let the guy actually have to prove himself on the field instead of celebrating him as, you know, the the Messiah coming to town. I think, you know, that's that was a mistake on the Bills' part. I'm probably drifting too far down the road here, but just a guy who really comes to mind as just being difficult and really tough to cover. Earlier, you mentioned Tim Graham. By the way, if you haven't figured this out already, I like to spend a lot of time talking about sports and media and stuff like that, just because I think it's something different. We're going to hit on a couple Buffalo Bills things because fans will kill me if I don't. But I love to have guys like you on the show to get to know you a little bit better and get to hear your takes on things beyond just the Buffalo Bills. Now, you mentioned Tim Graham earlier. You're often a guest, or I should say a co-host with him on his weekly Tim Graham radio show. As I think it's on every Wednesday from four to six. Mm-hmm. What's it like working with Tim? And how do you feel about, you know, doing radio stuff in general? Tim's awesome. Tim's great. And I know Tim going back to really my first year at ESPN in 2010 when he was the AFC East uh, writer. So he would be, you know, at a couple of uh, Patriots practices here and there. He'd be at some of their games during the season. So I got to know him that way. And, you know, and actually first got offered this job. I think he was the first person I reached out to just to get advice on, you know, what it's like coming here. So yeah, we've, we've known each other for a while. And, um, I mean, I, I probably talk to him almost every day or or see him at least once or twice a week, even outside of the radio show. He's so talented. I think, first of all, um, I think a lot of people in this market and in probably outside this market recognize that he's, you know, one of the best long form feature writers there is out there just in his prose and his, his storytelling. Um, he's very good at that, but he's also very good at cultivating sources. I think everybody in this market is afraid of sort of what he knows and who he talks to. Even the teams themselves, I think, realize that he's pretty deep in all of them. Uh, I'd say more so than anybody else in this market. So he's talented. And just being around him, you start to, to learn things and, and pick up things just from uh, sort of osmosis. And um you know, just from a personality standpoint as well, he, he's a lot of fun to be around, um, you know, whether it's at the radio show or at the bar afterwards or wherever. Uh, he's just entertaining and is certainly one of my, my most trusted friends. I, I, I love him to death. One more question about, this is about social media, and then we'll wrap up with some Buffalo Bills stuff. Why can't some people, and, and hold on, let me backtrack here. You use Twitter for obvious reasons. You're a reporter. You You've already broken it down. Information's quick and instant in today's era. All writers, you know, you have to utilize Twitter. You're dead if you don't. But why can't some people just shut up on social media? And I mean specifically this. Look at what happened with Roseanne today. We're taping this on Tuesday. Why tweet stupid shit like she did? Look at what it cost, not only her, but all the people who work on the Roseanne show. You know, the show's canceled. It's done. All these people lose jobs. What is it with people that just don't know when is enough and to, to not say the worst things you could possibly say on Twitter. Yeah, it's, it's always that um, the question of whether it's a personal platform or whether you're representing your company. I think it's both. I mean, just from your your own personality, you're, you are representing the company in that way. 
uh, because we're all our personalities. We're not nameless or faceless and people are going to find out about us through Twitter. So I think you have to treat it as both um, a professional and a, a personal platform. And that's obviously the message that's been, you know, communicated with us from, you know, our management. Um, obviously there's been, you know, incidents, you know, at ESPN as well, and that have led to social media policies. And my approach to it has always just been to play it as conservatively as possible and basically avoid being the subject of a, a deadspin article or something else. And that's probably the, the safest way to play it. I think there's also a school of thought where people do view it as a platform and whether it's a, a social cause or something else. And, and, you know, they see it as a valuable way to you know, put their voice out there, but there's pitfalls and um, you just have to be smart about it. I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's a, a magic uh, approach, but it's, um, yeah, there's, it's, it's necessary to a standpoint, to a certain point to be on social media and to communicate that way. So, you know, just have to, um, you know, respect what other people are saying and, and try not to engage. I think that's, that's probably the biggest point of advice is just not get wrapped up in, in arguments and in the back and forth and just try to use it more as a, uh, a, a way to put something out there rather as a way to, um, you know, get into a heated argument with somebody. Do you spend a lot of time on your Twitter going through your mentions? I'd imagine some of them are pretty brutal. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, sometimes I'll just ignore it. Sometimes it's, again, it's like a comedy value there where you're just, you know, sitting around the bar or whatever, and you're kind of laughing at what people have to say. It's, <laughs> there's so many different opinions and some of them are satirical. Some of them are just funny to read. There's, you know, people will make memes and, and gifs and stuff of you and, those kind of get passed around among us as jokes. Uh, some of the, the satirical Twitters are out there that the accounts are pretty funny. Um, so, you know, you just take it for what it's worth. I don't think I, you know, really take it to heart. I'm not losing any sleep over it. And I don't think about it um, when I don't need to, but it can be fun just to look at. So you get to Buffalo in time to cover the Rex Ryan era. Now it's the Sean McDermott era as a reporter did you realize, you know, was it like night and day immediately with that, the difference between the two? Or were the changes at one Bill's drive a little more subtle than most people think? Um, I'd say a little bit of both. I mean, once you start listening to Sean, it's pretty clear that, you know, personality-wise, they're night and day. I think that's, you know, one of the reasons for the hire in the first place is that Sean is so regimented and serious and, um, I don't want to say uptight, but he's not going to you know, just give you information or give you a quote the same way that Rex would. So you see that, but I think there was also, you know, gradual changes that took place. It took them two or three months until they made a, a change at, at PR, you know, they went from Scott Birchall to Derek Boyko. And uh, I think that, that was certainly associated with the greater openness uh, around a team and just a, a different approach to the media, uh, more you know, positive approach, let's say. And then mm -hmm. you have to change at GM a couple months later from Doug Whaley to Brandon Bean. And, you know, Whaley was almost never one to talk to us. It was always very combative when he did talk to us versus Brandon Bean is very conversational with you. Um, very available. You know, you can talk to him pretty much anytime you want. So it, it took, you know, six months and still taking place now, just the difference and going from one to the other. But, you know, it's, if I had to choose, let's say, between Rex versus McDermott, I'd still choose McDermott. As entertaining as Rex Ryan was, it was sometimes just a shtick. And it, it you know, really seemed that way towards the end of his tenure, especially when he realized that I think he was going to get fired. Yeah. He was a little bit more combative with us versus Sean McDermott, who, yeah, may not give you the same quote, but you feel like he's being a little bit more genuine with you, a little more honest. Um, so you know, I think that's easier to deal with, especially given just the general approach and the change to the approach that's taken place around the team. Stick or not though, Rex Ryan had to be worlds different than when you, like you talked about earlier in the show, when you were covering Bill Belichick. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I, I do wonder sometimes what Bill Belichick thinks of Rex Ryan, because you see them around at the combine together and he seems to have a lot of respect for him as a coach uh, of defense at least, but you know, you can't imagine that Belichick was, you know, loving what he, what Rex did, you know, before some of those games and, and sort of challenging Belichick and calling him out. It's two 
very different ways to skin a cat. And I think, you know, it's, it's clear which one worked just based on Rex's career versus Belichick's career. But yeah, it, it's, you've gone for me, at least you've gone from a very difficult coach to cover in Belichick to one who's sort of a instant newsmaker in Rex to one in McDermott, who I think is a little more nuanced that, um, you know, I think he's somewhere in between. I think he's much more appreciative of the media and he's going to, you know, he's going to walk up to you and, and shake your hand. I don't think Belichick will even look at you, but he's not going to give you the same sort of material that Rex will. The way the draft played out for the bills, were you a little surprised that Buffalo wasn't more locked into Josh Rosen? Many people thought that's the way things were going to turn out, especially going back several months. And by many people, I, you know, I probably should admit that that's, you know, publications and writers and stuff like that. Obviously not talent evaluators in Buffalo, but are you a little surprised that Josh Rosen wasn't the pick? Um, a little bit. I, I think I still have a gut feeling that Rosen's personality and some of the extracurricular stuff there with maybe political views or whatever else you might have to say, I think that probably played a part in the decision, whether it was Brandon Bean thinking maybe that would have been, you know, a, a tough pill to swallow and taking Rosen or whether it was Pagula's not wanting to have such a strong voice uh, or potentially controversial voice in, in Rosen. Again, that's it's speculation, I, I think to a point, but it's, it's clear that they value sort of who Josh Allen is and, and being a little bit more football focused, let's say, or just a quieter personality. I, I think if you look at it from that standpoint, it's, you know, it's probably would have been him all along, but the football, yeah, there's plenty of questions, you know, about Josh Allen. And you wonder if the bills are overrating his hand size and his ability to play in cold weather. We seem to hear that about EJ Manuel, for instance, and the size of his hands and how that would help him. And it's been true for other quarterbacks you know, historically. So I think nobody really knows. And that's kind of what it comes down to. You hear a lot of people around the league just talk about how the, the draft is kind of a crapshoot and you get lucky sometimes by taking a certain quarterback or a certain player. And sometimes you don't. So, you know, as much homework and research you want to put into these guys, sometimes at the end of the day, it's just, it's a guess. This guy's going to work out better than that guy. And even then there's still, X number of factors that go into it, whether it's coaching or players around them or injuries, and you just never really know. And um, I'm not going to really knock the Bills for taking Josh Allen over Josh Rosen. I don't think I really have ever written that it was a mistake, but my take on it is that I think it's a it's a huge move for Brandon Bean, and we get four or five years down the road. That's that's what's going to define him is whether it made sense to draft Josh Allen over Josh Rosen. So I don't think you can understate the importance of the draft pick. I just think it's too early to say whether it was right or wrong. Now we're only getting ready to flip the calendar in June. So there's still a lot of time, but as of right now, how do you expect the bills quarterback situation to play out over the course of training camp in the preseason? McDermott said it's going to be an open competition. How much do you buy that? And who do you think right now as of right now is going to go into week one as a starter? My gut still says AJ McCarron based on his experience and, if you want to steady your hand to lead your offense and especially through the, the schedule they have over the first five or six games, really seven games, five of the first seven on the road and right. green Bay and Minnesota. I don't know if I want Nathan Peterman to make those starts. I, I probably don't want Josh Allen to make those starts as well, unless you're really of a mindset that this is a rebuilding season and you can throw Allen out there and whatever happens, happens. He's learning. I don't think that's how McDermott thinks. I think McDermott really wants to win every single game um and and wants to really go as hard as possible every single week because that's what he think it, what it takes to win in the NFL and what it takes to keep your job. I don't think he's as concerned about 2019 or 2020 as he is 2018. So he's going to pick the best quarterback that he thinks will win. And look, I think Sean McDermott has a very high opinion of Nathan Peterman. I I think he's hoping for a lot out of him. I don't think he's necessarily going to become maybe what McDermott thinks he could it's there's not a lot of track record with later round quarterbacks developing into something even resembling a legitimate starter in the NFL so it's an uphill battle um, I think he's going to give Peterman every shot he can and we'll continue to see him take first team reps probably through minicamp and maybe maybe even in the training camp as well but AJ McCarron's still probably the, the more talented player and I think that's the direction they eventually lean. 
Um, unless Josh Allen can really come along quickly and they're really feeling good about him. But every indication I've gotten is that they, they want to wait on, on Josh Allen until the time is really right. On most fronts, it seems like it was a pretty good offseason in Buffalo. But are you a little bit surprised that they didn't do more to address a wide receiver position, especially given, you know, Kelvin Benjamin's history with the, with the knee leg injuries and, you know, all the stuff on and off the field with Zay Jones and things like that. I mean, they got Jeremy Curley, but are you a little surprised that they didn't do more? Well, I think it, as we're seeing now, now there's Dean and McDermott's guys are on the team where last year they were getting rid of players like Ronald Darby and Sammy Watkins and, um, you know, Reggie Ragland and, and all sorts of players who they didn't draft and they didn't hand pick and they were very willing to get rid of those players and bring in new ones. Well, now you're talking about a guy in Zay Jones who Sean McDermott essentially drafted last year in the second round. So naturally, I think there's a um, there's a feeling where we need to put him out there. We need to see what he can do. We need to almost prove ourselves right in making that pick. So you hear a lot more supportive language from McDermott about Zay Jones and you might have heard about some other guys last year who they never really picked to be on the team. And I think the same is true for Kelvin Benjamin in Brandon Bean's eyes because he drafted him or helped draft him in Carolina and he made that trade to bring him in for a third and seventh round pick last year. So in some ways he needs to prove himself right in making that trade and he believes in Kelvin Benjamin and to bring in somebody else would almost be undermining your own um, cause on that end. So that's a position where, you know, I think there's a couple guys they really want to see succeed in Benjamin and Jones, but maybe it's wishful thinking. Maybe Kelvin Benjamin has been too banged up the last couple of years. Maybe Zay Jones just isn't able to transition to the NFL game that the way they thought they would or the way they thought he would. Um, and there's going to be nothing else behind them. That's really a fallback plan. So, Maybe it takes until later on for for them to realize that and try to bring somebody in. But right now, I think they're they're sticking with their guns and sticking with the the moves they made last year. Last Bill's question, and then we'll start to wrap this up. You covered, and I'm sure you got to know Richie Incognito over the past few years a little bit. Is it alarming to you to see how things have spiraled with him over these past few months? It is, um, because I think he really turned things around just from interacting with him. And he's probably one of the players I'd say over the last two or three years where media interacted with him and had more dealings with him than, than most players, just because he was pretty friendly and, um, you know, willing to talk to you in the locker room. He was more like a regular guy, uh, than some other players, I guess, in there who, you know, weren't as approachable. And, yeah, you got the sense that he had sort of turned around his life. And, you know, you also got the sense that the problems he had back in Miami were legitimate, that, um, you know, he could very well have been bullying Jonathan Martin and, and some of the things that he said, you can envision him saying uh, in Miami, but you figured that he had turned it around, that he had learned his lesson, that he had cleaned himself up. And then you see what happens, you know, the last couple of weeks and, or even going back to earlier in the spring with some of his tweets and just sort of erratic firing his agent on Twitter. Yeah. It's, um, you wonder, you know, you hope that everything works out for him and, um, he's able to stay safe and he gets the help that he needs, but it is, it's disheartening. Um, it's, it's almost scary in, in how quickly things have turned for him. And, um, you know, he said that he wants to make the Hall of Fame. I don't think there's any chance of that happening. He says he wants to come back to play football. I, I don't see any team taking a chance on him at this point, especially that he'll be 35 before the season starts. It's just, um, you know, you hope that he finds a way to, you know, continue on and be successful in life after football. But there's so many stories of guys who just can't. And you hope that he's not the next one. Yeah, I hope if he if he needs help, I really hope he gets it. Okay, Mike, here's how I like to wrap things up. I do a little mini lightning round with every guest. What I'm going to do is just ask you a handful of random questions. Not too much thinking involved. Just pop out whatever, whatever comes in your head. Just pop it out to me. All right. Yep. All right. Favorite athlete that you've covered. Ooh, uh, Randy Moss. Favorite non-sports related activity to do. Golf. Oh, it's not. I guess that's is sport. Well, let's see. Activity to drink. (laughs) 
Okay, so you're, you're, you are becoming a Buffalonian, dude. <laughs> Favorite city to visit? Uh, I just visited Paris, and I loved it. Nice. Who's the most entertaining fellow Buffalo Bills reporter you know? Tim Graham. Uh, do you have a favorite sports movie? Uh, rookie of the Year. Okay. Haven't heard that one before. If you have, if you never got involved in journalism in any capacity at all, what do you think you may have ended up doing with your life? Some sort of finance or banking. Okay, last two questions here. If Twitter sent you a note and said, Mike, you're only allowed to follow one person on Twitter and one person only, who would it be and why? Jerry Sullivan, because I, I love the man to death and I hope that he uh, continues to tweet because I, I love everything he brings up and every little factoid he gets, I love. Okay, last question here. You could have three dinner guests from any era, living or dead. Who you got? I got Winston Churchill, Abraham Lincoln, and George Washington. I'm a big fan of, of history, and I, I want to hear about what they have to say about their respective eras. Very nice. Okay, guys. Mike Rodak from ESPN.com, Buffalo Bills reporter. I thank you very much for your time. We went over. I stole you for over an hour. I apologize for that. But, no dude, you, you brought a lot to the table, so I just wanted to keep it going. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. All right, that's the show for today. Thanks again to Mike Rodak from ESPN.com for his time. Great interview. And hopefully Bills fans and media fans took something away from it. If you haven't done so already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show. It's very easy and it's very free. When you subscribe, you'll automatically get new episodes sent directly to your phone or laptop. So you don't have to go searching around for it. And if you want, you can leave a nice five-star review there to help boost our rankings. I ain't going to be mad at you for it. If you don't have Apple Podcasts, you can listen and subscribe at Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Player FM, and pretty much wherever future award-winning podcasts are heard. We're not hard to find. If you got any show ideas, you can email them to me at MoranAlyticsPodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at PamoranTweets. And don't be afraid to hit that like button on the Moranalytics Podcast Facebook page. I'll be back with another show on Monday. I'll have a good guest, and I'm sure plenty to talk about, including, like I said at the top of the show, what is going on with the Buffalo News Sports Department. If your name's not Roseanne Barr, hope you have a great weekend. Stay safe, and I'll talk to you guys on Monday. Peace out.